When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ducks Confidential. I'm Oregon Ducks beat reporter James Crepia here for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Going over the big story of the last 24 hours, and while not unexpected, it is nevertheless uh, still incredibly important and impactful to the Oregon football program, and that is Panay Sewell opting out of the 2020-21 season to begin preparations for the 2021 NFL Draft. We'll break down the impact of that on Oregon for whether there is a spring season and what that might mean and what the Ducks have to do going forward to replace him later. But we start off really with a discussion of looking at the career that was for Panay Sewell at the college level and how impactful he was in his short time at Oregon because the news is obviously enormous and it will matter to the Ducks going forward. But you don't want to lose sight of the fact that this was a young man who had an unbelievably big impact in a very short period of time. I mean, you got to remember that in 2018, as a true freshman, not only does he start uh, very quickly and become one of the first true freshman offensive line starters in quite some time for Oregon, but obviously has incredible success. Now, yes, their 2018 non-conference schedule opened up comparatively easier. So it allowed for him to certainly get his uh, footing before things really ratcheted up. But once they did, he wasn't overwhelmed at all, not in the least, uh, and had absolutely proven himself to be a more than capable starting offensive lineman in the Pac-12 immediately. As I say, yes, the non-conference schedule, okay, those opponents weren't that good, but he very quickly progressed and developed thereafter, earned freshman All-American honors from numerous different outlets, even though he missed half the season. If he doesn't suffer a high ankle sprain against Washington, he's probably unanimous All-American, for at least freshman All-American, if not unanimous All-American, period. He was off to an unbelievable start as a true freshman was the number two offensive lineman in the Pac-12 and number seven tackle in the nation by pro football focuses grades of 84.0 as a true freshman. And that included the bowl game when he came back in the Red Box Bowl, where, hey, on one hand, commend him for coming back from the injury in a game that certainly mattered to the greater picture, but in the grand scheme of things was not the greatest game of consequence. And obviously, as we know, the game itself was not very good. 
And he didn't even play all that well in that game. But nevertheless, he ends up as one of the best young offensive linemen in the country as a freshman, plays all of seven games. A lot was expected of him in his sophomore season, but to ascend to not just All-American status, unanimous All-American status as one of just three Oregon Ducks to ever do it, with Michael James and Marcus Mariota being the others, but to become the Outland Trophy winner as a sophomore is absolutely remarkable. First player ever in Oregon history to win the Outland Trophy. Collects just a absolute bevy of awards. Again, All-America honors from every outlet you can imagine. Unanimous from the Big Five. Involved in the selection process. The Co-Player of the Year for Polynesian College Football Award. The AP Pac-12 Co-Offensive Player of the Year. As a lineman, we're talking about. These aren't things that happen every day. He was named the Pac-12 Offensive Lineman of the Week. I realize it's an award that was only recently established by the conference, but he was recognized four times when no other lineman was recognized more than twice. He started 13 games out of 14, and that was only because he missed the opening drive, opening possession uh, of one game due to being late to a team meeting once. If not for that, he would have started the entire season. Didn't allow a sack over 900 snaps. This is a caliber of player that, as I say, you don't you don't find this often. You find this very rarely anywhere in college football, not just in Oregon program history. You find this rarely, period. Again, where some of the competition obviously grossly outmatched, yeah, absolutely. Especially in non-conference play with the weaker uh, group of five and FCS opponents, he had his way with people. There is no question about it. But against better opponents, he still stood up and stood out and dominated. Remember, heading into the Pac-12 championship game, there were a lot of people who had doubts about Oregon still because they looked at the loss to Arizona State two weeks earlier and a lackluster offensive performance against Oregon State in the Civil War and weren't convinced that Oregon wasn't, I don't want to say a little bit of a pretender, but maybe a little bit uh, mentally broken by the fact that they were no longer going to be in the playoff hunt. And Utah was a very good team and competing for a playoff spot And there were a lot of folks who were on the Utah bandwagon because, hey, after all, if they win, they get in the playoffs, and it would have meant a lot to the Pac-12 had they gotten in. And their defense had a lot of players who made it to the NFL draft or signed as undrafted free agents. And they had the best pass rusher in the Pac-12, in a lot of people's opinion, in Bradley and I. And what happens? Well, obviously, Oregon wins that game. But it wasn't just that they won the game. It was that Utah's defense was woefully inept. They couldn't get any pass rush. They couldn't get any penetration in the backfield. And it started with Panay Sewell absolutely rendering Bradley and I useless in that game. Useless. For a player that most people felt heading into the Pac-12 championship game 
was the best pass rusher and edge player in the conference last season, was completely ineffective against Panay Sewell. Now, having said that, Panay Sewell is going to be a top five pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. And Bradley and I was the last pick in the fifth round of the 2020 NFL Draft. So, grand scheme of things, it should not be terribly surprising to folks that Panay Sewell had a better game than Bradley and I in the Pac-12 title game. But it wasn't just Bradley and I who we went up against. He went up against plenty of interior guys and double teams with you know Shane Lemieux as well and dominated there. There were games where you know it takes one play of film to watch Panay Sewell jump off the film. Where he blows back linemen into linebackers, linebackers into safeties. It's remarkable. Bounces linebackers two gaps over just by giving them a shoulder. This is the caliber of an offensive lineman that, and the scary thing is, is obviously if there was a season this fall for Oregon, it would have been really an examination for Panay Sewell as to whether or not he could even top the performance that he had a year ago. And of course, it's not to say that that wouldn't have been possible. The point is, is that it very much was possible. This is still a young man who is, it's scary to say, but really scratching the surface. He hasn't played that much college football. We're talking about a guy who's played, you know, 21 career college games. If he had another season, he could have potentially, and maybe even likely, won the Outland Trophy back-to-back years, which would have been historic in its own right. Been a unanimous All-American back-to-back years. May have been the rare offensive lineman to garner some Heisman Trophy consideration legitimately because he earned some votes last year from a handful of people, and that's all well and good. But especially this year, with so many different (laughs) conferences pulling out, and we'll see what the season ends up looking like in its entirety if it gets played, but had the Pac-12 not postponed fall sports and actually played, there would have been that much more of a consideration for Penesul. But even pandemic aside, there may have very well been legitimate consideration for Penesul as a Heisman Trophy candidate, as an offensive lineman. Now, I say candidate, I don't know about winner. That's, again, we have no idea what the season has in store. The point is, is he was extraordinary. And as I say, really just scratching the surface just in terms of the volume of games, And the shame of the many, many things that we missed this season beyond the missed games and uh, the fact that there won't be a fall season for Oregon is that all the various matchups that a player like Penesul was going to have, I mean, North Dakota State has some legitimate defenders. No, I'm not telling you that they're all future first-round draft picks or something. That's, That's not the case. But they have some legitimate defenders. It wouldn't have been Montana a year ago is mainly the point. And then obviously with Ohio State, the matchup there with Panay and Ohio State's edge rushers, now of course they don't have Chase Young anymore, but they would have had legitimate players to go up against Panay Sewell. And just the Ducks' practices with Panay Sewell and Kayvon Thibodeau, which obviously happened last year, but you have two All-Americans there, two preseason All-American, two players who without question we're making each other better every single day. 
and our future first round draft picks all would have been extraordinary to see on a day-to-day basis. And he undoubtedly would have dominated the Pac-12 again. And then whatever the postseason has in store, would have had in store for Oregon had they played this fall. Those are the things that we missed. And there was the conversation to be had, potentially. And I say potentially because we will never know. But there was the early conversation about this Peninsula belong in the conversation with an Orlando pace. And for those who really follow the offensive line and offensive line history in college football, putting anybody in the same sentence as Orlando Pace, putting even the entertaining the thought of the idea, quite frankly, is putting someone in such rarefied air that that in and of itself is an honor. But had he started the season well against the likes of, yes, North Dakota State, and then Ohio State, that conversation would have been had with Penesul. Because, again, dominance in the Pac-12 was almost a given. He had done it already for the better part of a year and a half. He had done it against the best edge rushers that the Pac-12 had to offer. And he goes up, frankly, in practice against better, you know, better competition than he would have faced by anybody in the Pac-12 this season. At which point... Had Oregon had a successful year and won, as obviously many fans would have expected because they are preseason top 10 team after all, yeah, Penesul would have been in those conversations nationally for Heisman consideration, Outland Trophy consideration, Maxwell Trophy consideration. All-American would have been almost a given. And yes, in the historical context, it would have been extraordinary to, to watch and chronicle and see, but it's among the many things that we'll miss out on, and that's a shame. That's one of the many things that we'll miss out on this fall. Just to give you an idea it, of the regard that other players held Panay Sewell in, this is from former Auburn defensive end Marlon Davidson, who obviously went up against Panay quite a bit in last season's season opener. He was asked the combine, who was the their toughest player or offensive line group that stood out most to him during his career. Remember, Davidson played four years in the SEC. He goes, I think it was Oregon. Just the way that they played ball, man, those guys were really good. Even though it was the first game of the season, that was probably the best offensive line I faced against at Auburn. He goes against the Alabama, LSU, Georgia offensive lines. Remember, the LSU offensive line last year won the Joe Moore Award. This is a Auburn defensive lineman saying the Oregon group is best. Panay Sewell, that dude there is remarkable. He is. He's going to be a first-round draft pick next year for sure. Just how that came and approached the game is as a sophomore. I just wonder how he's going to come and approach the game as a junior. It'll be two totally different people. Then he was asked, what stood out about Panay Sewell? I mean, just everything. Physical attributes, his athleticism, being a left tackle. I mean, just how he approached that day. It was very hard for me. Now, me coming in, I was like, he's a sophomore. I don't think he's that good. Just from watching film from last year, and then him coming around and changing, that's the thing about it. He changed from his whole freshman year into this monster. Just going up against him was fun. That's from a four-year starter in the SEC 
who was a top 50 pick in last year's draft, who went up against the likes of, like I say, LSU, Alabama, Georgia, every single year. He doesn't owe Panay Sewell anything. That's the kind of respect he commanded from opponents who, like I say, Auburn won the game. Marlon Davidson could have picked anybody. Anybody. He went up against Andrew Thomas at Georgia, who was a first-round pick last year. He called out Oregon and Panay Sewell and credited them for how good they were. Then, obviously, Panay's teammates during his career and the things they said throughout it goes on and on. I mean, you, you, could, you could fill a book with just the, the platitudes and their respect for his physicality, his work ethic, and the like, and just the, the overall ability to move in open space, dominate blocks, take on multiple defenders. And like so many things, because on the offensive line, after all, it is a group position, the appreciation that older offensive linemen, I realize in college it's all relative, but older offensive linemen, who, as we all know, Oregon's offensive line last year, with the exception of Panay, was all seniors. And basically everybody else had started three or four years in their careers. They are appreciating that this young guy is not only as good as he is, that he's making them better and making their jobs easier. How often do you think Jake Hansen had to worry about whether or not the blind side of Justin Herbert was protected by Panay Sewell. How much do you think Shane Lemieux had to really be concerned that this double team is or isn't going to help me? Or if he's one-on-one to start off a play, that, you know, can I get help from Panay or not? And the answer is zero for either one of those things. And the stories from Shane Lemieux or Jake Hansen or Calvin Throckmorton, Jake Breeland. These are guys who all just wax poetic about Penesul. Talking about his transition as a high school player to then being a college player from a freshman to a sophomore. Extraordinary. Talking about, again, on screens, how he would get open downfield. Obviously, in the Washington game, you remember on the long touchdown play to Micah Pittman in particular, he got way downfield. And and Shane Lemieux, I think it was that play where Shane Lemieux talks about, he goes, he went went out 15 yards downfield, just shillelagh a linebacker, really made the play. How about all the times, again, you've watched him just knock linebackers back into safeties to create the the long touchdown run that C.J. Verdell had uh, at Otson Stadium on one of them, where early in the season, where he had a absolutely blistering block another one where Jawan Johnson had the double team block as well on the long touchdown run from uh, CJ I think that was in the Washington State game but there were others where Sewell just absolutely decimates defensive linemen now again you could say oh well you know the Washington State defense wasn't necessarily that good or the players weren't you know future draft picks like sure but how many other Pac-12 offensive linemen were you watching dominate the competition like that wasn't happening. And he wasn't doing it against, like I say, just, he wasn't just beating up and padding his numbers and dominance against the lower caliber teams in the Pac-12. Oregon completely rendered Evan Weaver ineffective. 
against Cal. Was that exclusively Panay? No, it was not. No, it was not. And Hamilcar Rashid Jr. of Oregon State in the Civil War, when it was still referred to as the Civil War last year. In that game, in that rivalry game, Oregon rendered Rashid basically ineffective and he didn't really contribute very much in the box score. Why? Well, the offensive line made a collective uh, strategic moves in both of those instances. Was Panay involved in it? Yes. Was Shane Lemieux involved in it? Yes. Was Jake Hansen involved in it because he had to call out all of them? And the alignments and the protections? Yeah, all those things. And certainly the play calling went along with it. But point is, is they did things as an offensive line. Not just because of good coaching or scheme or strategy. If the players weren't there, it wouldn't work. And if you had a young left tackle who was just, you know, the water he, he was... The water was over his eyes. He wasn't able to to hack it. Then the rest of the offensive line, no matter how experienced they would be, they wouldn't necessarily have been able to do all the things they did last year. Remember, Auburn's big three entering the season opener was going to be the biggest challenge an Oregon offensive line had seen in years. And they did not produce a sack from those three players in that game. Bradley and I, ineffective. Some of the best linebackers in the Pac-12, ineffective against Oregon. Is it all because of Penesul? Not all. In Bradley and I's case with the Utah game, yeah, I would, I would say it's very heavily due to Penesul and Calvin Throckmorton, but... A lot of it is because of his presence allows the rest and allowed the rest of the offensive line to be that good. And again, we can go on and on about how good Panay was. We certainly have many months to do that leading up to next year's draft, as he's already signed on with Athletes First and the same agency as Justin Herbert to begin his draft preparations. But now to the question about going forward and who do the Ducks tap to replace Panay Sewell? Now, let's first take with the most obvious uh, in the short term, the scholarship count for the Ducks with Panay opting out. This is absolutely not the way any Oregon fan wanted to see them get to the 85 scholarship limit, but it is of note, Oregon is now at the 85-player scholarship limit. I won't begin to speculate in terms of had Panay not opted out, what would they have done or whatever. It's a moot point. They're at 85. So any further attrition or movement or opt-outs from here will only get them further, you know, below the limit, but they're at the limit right now. They exceeded that limit temporarily um, when George Moore was granted his sixth year of eligibility a couple of weeks ago. But again, obviously, then the decision by the Pac-12 kind of rendered all of this a moot point. Be that as it may, they're at the 85 limit. And because I just mentioned George Moore, that brings us further to the conversation of what do they do at offensive tackle. Let's assume for the moment that there is going to be a spring season for the Pac-12. And whether that's in line with the Big Ten as they hope or not or whatever, we'll find out in the months ahead. But let's assume for the moment that a spring season actually occurs. Well, based on the roster as we know it today, with George Moore getting a six-year of eligibility, he was... Basically, the fourth slash fifth tackle last season, but that's where if you include 
Bradley, uh, I, uh, Brady Aiello in the mix, along with uh, obviously Stephen Jones, Panay, and Calvin Throckmorton starting. Moore was in there, and then when Jones was redshirted at that point, Moore was higher up uh, on the depth chart. So George Moore is in the conversation. He was, technically speaking, the number two left tackle on paper at times, but in reality, as we all knew, Stephen Jones was really, for all intents and purposes, the number four tackle, and that's with Aiello, where he flexed in at right guard with uh, Dallas Warmack. So it was always the conversation. It was Aiello at right guard. Was he a tackle? How do you want to you know approach that? Be that as it all may. George Moore is obviously in the mix. Stephen Jones is obviously in the mix. The question is, who takes over on the left side? I would say that those are the two lead candidates because Moore, as a 60-year senior, both in terms of his physique and size and practice experience, has to have a bit of an advantage entering whatever semblance of practice and whatever practice really fully resumes with contact. I realize the Ducks are going to be returning to campus in, inside of two weeks and that training will resume again and the like. But realistically, when we're talking about serious practices for whatever the next season might be, and I have no idea about the legitimacy of a spring season, whether or not it'll coincide with the Big Ten. Even Mario Cristobal this past weekend and talking to CBSSports.com and Dennis Dodd had basically leveled the idea that a spring season may not have a lot of credibility to it, especially if the fall season goes through to fruition and there's a playoff and they crown a champion, literally quoting Cristobal here to Dennis Dodd saying, what are you champ? We're number two. Uh, so with that idea in mind, obviously there's a lot of doubt as to whether or not there's a spring and what happens. But assuming for the moment that there's a spring and that's the next conversation to have, who's involved? George Moore is involved. Stephen Jones is involved. And Jonah Tanu is involved, and he was really the backup left tackle this past spring uh, when the Ducks were going through practice. But those are the three candidates. And Jones, you know, is going to have one of the starting jobs. He was at right tackle, and he was the presumptive favorite and was absolutely going to start uh, at right tackle had there had been a fall season because Panay would have been on the left side. Now, with this move, Moore, who was really the second team right tackle last season on paper, at least in practice with you know the full second team unit, even though in reality we knew it was Jones, even though he's working on the inside at times and the like. Now Jones might move back to the left side. Moore could take over again on the right side. And that's the conversation. Or does Jonathan, as a red shirt freshman, ascend to the point to where he can challenge a sixth-year senior in George Moore for a starting job. That will be a position battle, whether that be for a spring season or if the next time the Ducks play competitive football is a year from now, that will be the position battle because Moore is not going to enter the NFL draft uh, this offseason, whether there's a spring or not. Uh, He got the additional year of eligibility, and it would obviously best serve him to continue his career and have an opportunity to play uh, more than he ever was in line to do before, uh, certainly without being granted the additional eligibility. And Tanner is not draft eligible, so there's, there's no argument to be had. That will be the conversation. That will be the position battle, truly. 
But do I think Stephen Jones at this point enters this hypothetical as the – and this – well, it's not even hypothetical. <laughs> it's it's a legitimate conversation right now. Does he enter this uh, question right now as the presumptive favorite to take back over at left tackle where he filled in for Panay Sewell, remember, in 2018 when Sewell went down with a high ankle sprain? It was Jones who had played selectively already who filled in as the starter at left tackle, but then he suffered a concussion at Utah and then missed a couple of games down the stretch. Otherwise, Jones would have finished that as the starter uh, at left tackle the rest of the way. And then there was further movement along the line and all the rest. We we know, obviously, retroactively what happened there from 2018. So Jones is absolutely going to be a starter. I'd say it's a matter of which side. And I think that is going to largely be dictated by if George Moore is the other starter, I would think George Moore is at right tackle and Jones is on the left side. If Jonathanu is the winner of that position battle, then I think Jones could stay on the right side potentially because Jonah is the long-term solution at left tackle. The question is, when does the short-term in the long-term solution begin? Does the short-term begin the very next time Oregon plays competitive football? And like I say, whether that be in the spring or next fall, or is that a, at that point, 2022 event we just don't know because remember even if they play in the spring if they play in theory could George Moore take off thereafter if they play early in the winter and then could take off for the combine and the draft thereafter I suppose uh, but he the you don't lose the eligibility this year so you can play in the spring and still get next fall and for a player like George Moore even though he is a six-year senior he hasn't played a lot and a limited sample of game tape probably isn't going to be enough to project anything by way of his uh, potential future, even as an undrafted free agent or something to give him the best shot to do that. So even if they play in the spring, I do think there will be a position battle for next fall between him and uh, Tanu regardless, but we'll see in the long run how that looks after the, immediate position battle there and, and sorting out of things uh, ahead, you start getting beyond that. And, and what does the offensive line look even further down the road? Now, now you've got so many moving parts. It, it gets really hard to project, but in, as far as who replaces Panay in the short term, I do think Steven Jones is the heavy favorite to do so. And we'll wrap up this edition of the podcast uh, just lightly on the conversation of what will happen in terms of the spring and, and the like, and is that viable or not? And as we've touched on already, there's still a lot of unknowns here. And we'll get more decisions and clarity from first the NCAA and the Division I Council when they meet on September 16th. They're going to be voting on uh, a calendar in terms of the football season, a calendar in terms of the basketball seasons, uh, potentially addressing some things recruiting related. So a lot of things are on the docket for the NCAA. The Pac-12, after announcing its deal, with Quidel Corporation to have its uh, rapid antigen uh, COVID-19 testing machines in place at the 12 athletic departments by the end of the month of September. That certainly helps things uh, in the progress to returning to play sport. But what does that mean in terms of football? Does football start as it currently is slated to do in January? Do they back it up into December? Do they even get as early as late November? 
what are we talking about here exactly in terms of a timeline? All of this remains really unclear uh, at this point. And like I say, as Mario Cristobal said in the story on CBSSports.com this past weekend from Dennis Dodd, obviously the fact that there is not a season and you're watching this season opening weekend this past week begin with games around the country, it really sucks to have to miss out on that. And that's literally quoting Mario Cristobal in the story. I mean, the headline for the, for the story is, it sucks. Uh, yes, and, and I think he's expressing the feelings of coaches, fans, players, uh, and the like across the country whose teams are not playing right now. But to the spring and the viability of spring, yeah, Cristobal addresses that as well. And, you know, credit to him, he's addressing the elephant in the room and the viability of it. When it was first announced nearly four weeks ago, he was saying he wanted to see plans, you know, as to what it meant, how does it look like in terms of games, in terms of structure, in terms of scheduling and the like. But ultimately, no matter what you draw up, if there's a fall season and you're crowning a champion in the fall, what is the viability and the integrity of a spring season for half the sport? And of course, the answer is there is none. And Mario knows that as well as plenty of fans know that. That if this fall season is played to fruition, and it certainly looks like that it will be at this point, yes, there will be postponements. There may even be cancellations. There may even be significant disruptions. But at this juncture, after this opening weekend, and if you want to go back to the FCS opener the week before, after a small number of games... We'll see in terms of the next week or two, and especially once the SEC and ACC and Big 12 all get firing and all get games underway in the weeks ahead. We get two, three, four weeks into it. If they all play, the idea that they're all going to slow down, again, that there could be disruptions, there may be postponements, but looks like they're headed to play through a full fall season. And credit to them, and if they're able to do it safely, And players are comfortable, and anybody who wishes to opt out can do so, and all the like. But ultimately, if they can play in the fall and do so safely, that's a credit to those conferences and those conferences' leadership and medical teams for enabling that to happen. But as we all know, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 elected not to go that route. And while there's conversation in the Big Ten about what they may or may not do and will they change plans and the like, you haven't heard any of that from the Pac-12. So... At this point, all we can go on is the idea that a season could start on January 1st. Could it be moved up earlier than that? Maybe. When does training begin for it? At least six weeks before, whenever the start date is. Uh, We know that already because that's the six weeks that was supposed to be heading into a fall season. So we know that the six-week idea is already on the table. It's then a matter of what is the integrity of a spring season, whether it be eight games or ten games and conference only or a non-conference game or two non-conference games or what have you. What integrity does it have if you've already crowned a college football playoff champion for the fall? And again, I don't think there will be very much, at which point you say, well, you know, that may be one person's view, but when it's the head coach's view and he's already expressed it, It's kind of hard to sell that option to the players and the real elephant in the room that has to be confronted by everyone in college sports. And this isn't a coach decision at all or 
something that they really have any say in the matter. The NCAA is going to be addressing the name, image, and likeness conversation and topic and finalizing its plans, the framework for which was supposed to be uh, released last week uh, in terms of their most recent proposals. But they're going to be voting on it in January, and name, image, and likeness compensation can begin next July. Well, why would any player in football specifically agree to play a spring season, whether it be in January, February, March, or April, why would any of them play? If they're draft eligible, they'll take off, as many of them already have. But why would any of them play and risk anything then when they know they can get paid two or three or four months later? And that topic has to be confronted, whether it be by conference commissioners, the NCAA itself, presidents and chancellors, athletic directors. They have to be the ones to actually deal with the reality that all of these athletes, yes, we talk about in football because that is the one with the most players and the sport that was delayed from the fall, but also will be a conversation for basketball potentially. Potentially. If they do start the season in late November across the country, maybe not. But for the spring sports, it will also be an interesting conversation because if spring sports start on time in terms of their season, so you're talking about February or March, depending on the sport in question, but really January in terms of off-season uh, preseason training camp and the like and practices harder for them to say, no, I'm going to wait for name, image, and likeness to kick in after they missed at least half of last season and had their seasons disrupted to voluntarily do it and sit out because you were essentially redshirted and granted an additional year of eligibility a year ago. If you did it to yourself voluntarily for compensatory reasons, as a returning senior, who would be the only one really with a massive incentive to do that, because in theory, if you're a player who's a junior or sophomore or freshman or something, you'd say, well, it's going to be nice to get paid in the future, but I know I still have the opportunity to do that, and I'd love to have an additional year if I could, but I'm going to get it eventually, and I'll just have to maximize it. But if you're a outgoing senior, you were granted additional eligibility. You know name, image, and likeness. You weren't expecting it to be a thing for you, unfortunately, it's happenstance. It's bad timing. Here you'll get confronted with, all right, what do you do? Do you play or not? Well, after missing out on last year and having the additional eligibility granted to you, if you chose to return, if your school is going to be covering that portion of scholarship for you, whatever it might be, to then say, no, let me opt out so that I can then try to get name, image, and likeness on top of it. I mean, you're talking about an athlete who might be in school at that point for six or seven years. And that's just a lot to ask. Whereas for football, that's a different situation entirely. Because ordinarily, they're used to just saying, let me get ready for the fall regardless. And again, if there's no integrity to the season because the sport is having this split at the moment with basically half the country playing and the other half not, that's a whole other matter entirely. So we'll see what happens for the winter and the spring sports in terms of their calendars and the schedules and the like. And once those decisions are made by the NCAA Division I Council, and if we're talking about recruiting, potentially the Conference Commissioners Association, we'll address that on future podcasts. But until then, signing off for now, this is James Kreppia for the Oregonian and Oregon Live.